Amen. Church family, would you take God's Word and join me this morning in Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. We're going to look at three verses together this morning, verses 8 through 10. Isaiah 35, verses 8 through 10. You, you heard as Larry and Linda were leading us through the, uh, the reading and the lighting of the Advent candles, you heard Isaiah 35 read and it's entirety and we come to the final three verses of that chapter for our study together this morning you might recall that the prophet Isaiah that his ministry occurs that he is prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah in those final years the leading up to the Babylonian destruction of uh, that southern kingdom of Jerusalem and Judah, he's prophesying sort of right before that 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And, and the theme of Isaiah's prophecy from start to finish is essentially this, judgment is going to come upon you, O people of Judah, because of your rebellion against God. And the way that that judgment is going to come to you is it's going to come through the hands of a Gentile people. It's going to come through the hands of the Babylonians. And what's going to happen, Isaiah prophesies, is that, is that they are going to come they are going to overrun your cities. They are going to destroy Jerusalem. They are going to ransack the temple of God. And the vast majority of you people are going to be taken out of the land of promise, taking to, taken to a land that is not yours, and you will be once again captive in a land that is not your own, this time for 70 years. However, in the midst of all of that prophecy about judgment, there is another great theme of Isaiah's ministry and prophecy. Throughout the book of Isaiah, amidst all the dark and all the gloom, there is also prophecy of great hope. There is prophecy of great joy. Even though God's judgment will certainly come, God will graciously restore. Even though God's people will be enslaved, ransom and redemption will occur. Even though you people will walk in a great darkness, there will be a glorious light. Even though there will be sorrow, joy will come again. Isaiah prophesies of a day, a future day when God's people will be set free from their bondage, when they will return to their beloved Jerusalem, and they will once again there worship on Zion's hill. This is why that hundreds of years later, when you get to Luke chapter 2 and verse 10, and the angel there is declaring that he comes with good news of a what? A great joy that will be for all the people. This is why that news is so great. It's good news of a great joy because when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, all the ancient prophecies find their yes 
and amen in Bethlehem's manger. All the ancient prophecies of hope and of joy throughout the book of Isaiah, these come to pass with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we would do well to remember that since the days of the Babylonian captivity and then the return back to Jerusalem, there has not been a great deal of joy for the people of God. Even when they returned from captivity back to Judah and Jerusalem, there was still a great deal of sorrow intermingled there. After those days, God would be silent for some 400 years. No prophecies. No reminder. These are very dark days. The people found themselves under Babylonian and then Persian and then Greek and then at the time of the New Testament, Roman rule. The land. The beautiful, precious land that had been promised uh, by God to Abraham and his descendants. That land is now overrun and is not really and truly theirs. Abuses. They have been many. Heaped upon God's people by, again, here in the New Testament, uh, the, the Romans, the Roman laws, the Roman government, the Roman soldiers. Abuses had been heaped upon God's people at the hands of their own people even. The religious system of Judaism that they found themselves a part of, that, that religion had become a joyless drudge that only heaped heavy burdens upon people's backs. If ever there was a time when God's people needed good news of a great joy, it was here and it was now. If ever, I think, we need good news of a great joy, I think that time is now. We live in a time of wars and rumors of wars. We, we live in just the oddest time of cultural confusion about things that we shouldn't be confused about. Christians all over the globe find themselves persecuted for the cause of Christ. These are unsteady financial times. Disease runs rampant. And I think we would do well to pause in the midst of all of our celebration to be reminded of this good news of a great joy. We need to be reminded of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 35, verses 8-10. to We need to understand that in this prophecy before us this morning that it finds its most immediate fulfillment when the people of God come back to Jerusalem from their captivity. But these prophecies are also still for us. It matters to us in the pew this morning. These prophecies are also for us because these prophecies have not yet been brought to their most complete and final fulfillment, which will come on the day when the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His glory comes again. Friends, do you need to be reminded of this good news of a great joy? 
Then, if so, hear the word of the Lord for you today. Pick up the text with me in Isaiah 35, verses 8 to 10. Isaiah prophesying about this better day says, starting in verse 8, a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there. But the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. You see this language here, pretty predominant of joy throughout this text. Joy that will be found for the people of God in Zion. That ancient name referring to the, the, the place, the mount upon which the temple sat and where God dwelt among His people and where God was worshipped. I want us to unpack these verses together and I want us to see here three aspects for us to kind of chew on and think about three aspects of Zion's joy. Number one in verse 8, we find this, that Zion's joy is only found on the highway of holiness. There's no other way to capture, to have, to get to this joy apart from walking what Isaiah here in verse 8 calls the highway of holiness. Just look at verse 8 again. Again, this is falling in the larger context of a moment where Isaiah has, is not prophesying about the coming judgment, but he's prophesying about the coming restoration. And in the midst of all this beautiful language in those first seven verses, he now says that there will be a highway, a roadway will be there, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way. As Isaiah looks under the inspiration of God's Spirit, as he looks to the future for God's people, what is it that he is able to see? A highway. A roadway called the highway of holiness. As long as there has been civilization, highways and roadways have been really of absolute necessity for human good and for human flourishing. You understand that highways, uh, even ancient highways, were ways that people moved from place to place. Maybe more importantly, it was the way that goods were transferred from one region to another that brought about the sustaining of life for people in those civilizations. Here, Isaiah envisions another kind of highway, a roadway. It's large. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a road that carries things. It moves people. Isaiah envisions this highway that God's people 
will travel upon to get safely home. It's an, as one commentator said, it's an eschatological highway used by the people of God as they return to Zion to praise God in the distant future. And Isaiah says about this highway, it's called the highway of holiness. Now, it's called the highway of holiness because the, the, the end at the end of this road is Zion, God's holy mounts, the holy city of Jerusalem, the place where a holy God dwells among His people. And beloved, if I can just maybe pause for a moment, let us not soon forget that the very reason we need Christmas is because God is holy. Because the infinite, eternal God, Creator, God of all the universe who continues to rule and to reign over all His creation, that God, the one true and living God, is holy. He is pure. He is set apart from all other creation. He is unblemished or untainted in any way by sin. And so then, it only stands to reason that a roadway that would lead to the place where God dwells among His people, where this holy God dwells among this people, would then be called the highway of holiness. This highway is called such because not only is it uh, denoting its destination, but it's called the highway of holiness because of the kind of people who travel upon this highway and because of the people who do not travel on this highway. Look further in verse 8. This roadway is the highway of holiness. Who is not traveling this road? The unclean will not travel on it. But it will be for him who walks that way. There there are no unclean people on this highway, the Word of God says. This language of being unclean is something that the people of God, certainly in the Old Testament, would have been very familiar with. We were having a conversation in our home the other day, and one of Our children asking, why is it that everything in the Old Testament is just making you unclean? If you touch this thing, if you eat that thing, if you go this place, it all is making you unclean. And that's honestly, church, one of the great sobering realities of the law. Of what we're seeing transpire before us in the Old Testament. That the law of God which could not save you, it could only point to your need for salvation, is this constant reminder that you are a sinner before a holy God. And if you would somehow be able to stand in the presence of this holy God, your uncleanness has to be dealt with. Your uncleanness has to be atoned for, and it must be forgiven. And so when the people of Israel here through the prophet Isaiah on this roadway, there are no 
unclean people on this road. Can you imagine how that might land on you if you're in their sandals in these ancient days? No uncleanness is walking there. There might be parts of that that are really uh, hopeful and encouraging to you. There might be aspects of that, though, that are very perplexing. How? How? When everything almost that we do or touch is making us unclean, how do we wind up on such a road when no unclean people can walk there? It's the highway of holiness. It only stands to reason then, if that's the name of the road, that nothing unclean gets to traverse that roadway. It's a very particular highway. It's a very particular highway where some are walking on that road and others are not. This roadway is for a very particular people. It will be, God says at the end of verse 8, this road will be for him who walks in that way. Who walks in that way of holiness. Just as a reminder, I think I referenced it a moment ago, but just to not miss it, what does that word holy mean? It means to be completely, entirely set apart. It means to be consecrated and set apart from all others and set apart unto God. God is holy. It dominates all the other aspects of His character. And as we read throughout Scripture, it has always been God's design that He would then make His people holy. So then, it is only holy people who walk on this roadway. Look again in verse 8. Fools, He says. Sinners. Those who despise wisdom. Despise God's Word. Fools. They will not wander on it. They will not be found aimlessly meandering, wandering, going astray on this road. And I think as we consider a very specific highway with a very specific name and very specific people who can and cannot walk on this highway, a natural question begins to arise in our hearts. Who then, if only clean people can walk this road, if only a holy people can walk on this highway, if no foolish sinner can find their way onto this roadway, then who is actually able to walk such a road. For who among us is completely, perfectly clean? Who among us is practically holy in every single aspect of our lives? Who among us has not played the fool, despising wisdom, hearing the word of the Lord and yet running in the complete opposite direction from it? Who among us has not aimlessly wandered about in our own wisdom, leading us to sin, consequences, 
Who among us is fit to walk such a road? The answer, beloved, is that none of us are fit to walk such a road. The reality, again, of what we're celebrating at Christmas is that God's holiness has come under attack. It has come under attack by our sin. By our rebellion against Him. And because that is true, we are separated from God. Hopelessly. Eternally. Separated from God. Because of that sin. But, God, who is so rich in mercy, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in the flesh, but according to His great gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, sending His Son to earth to die on a cross, to rise from the dead, to win the victory over sin and death, that through Christ and Christ alone, you and I might be made holy in God's sight so that we might be then fit to walk upon such a road to get us safely home. Hear the words of Christ, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Building on that, again, John chapter 10, verses 7 and 9, Jesus again says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the gate of the sheep. I am the gate if anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. How do we gain access to this highway of holiness that leads to a holy God? That leads to eternal worship of Him? And an eternal dwelling of God in the midst of His people. How? How do we end our sinful state? How do we do this? We do this through Christ, church. Through Christ and through Christ alone. There is no other gate. There is no other door that will lead us to salvation. Jesus says, I am that gate. If you want access, you got to come through me, you have to reject all others because it is only through Christ's cleansing blood that sins are cleansed, forgiven, and made right with God. It is only through Christ's blood that we are made holy in God's sight and therefore acceptable to Him. Zion's Joy is found only by walking the highway of holiness and entering upon that highway through the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, what else about Zion's future joy? There is joy in Zion 
Why does the text tell us? Because of creation's redemption. And I just love this so much, church. Look in verse 9 and then the very beginning of verse 10. He says about this highway leading to God. He says about this highway that there's no lion on that highway. There are no vicious beasts on that highway. These will not, they will not be found there. But the redeemed will walk there and the ransomed of the Lord will return. This is really a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day. Alright, just know that. But when you think heaven, I think, if we have eyes to see it in Scripture, that we ought to be thinking a lot less of clouds and angels with harps and all of that business. And we ought to be thinking more about a gloriously redeemed creation. A gloriously redeemed land in which God walks with His people in the cool of the day. And in which there are no lions that will eat you. There are no vicious beasts that will attack you. Those will not be in God's new and redeemed creation. He says here about these things, you don't have to fear being destroyed along the way. And for the travelers in these ancient times, traveling these highways was a dangerous business. There were thieves and robbers who would await behind the rocks and the crags of kind of this broken country. And when you came by, they would often attack, beat, steal, sometimes kill. These highways and roadways cutting through uninhabited land would often be filled with wild animals that would attack, maim, and kill. But it's not so with the highway of holiness, is it? There are no lions. There are no animals that will devour and destroy and attack. All things will eventually be made new and all things will eventually return to what God originally intended in Genesis 1 and 2. A creation where animals are in their proper abode and where humans exercise dominion over all of God's creation. It's a glorious thought. As Isaiah prophesies of this day, when creation is redeemed and animals remain in their proper place. Turn back to chapter 11. He gives in chapter 11 just a, a, a more maybe complete glimpse into what this looks like. Isaiah chapter 11, look down to verse 6 when you get there. 
The same type of prophecy here pointing to a future day. Chapter 11, verse 6, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place, church, will be glorious. Don't you crave it? Doesn't your soul long for it? Because you look around you and it's all so broken. It's all so broken. It's not even supposed to be this way. It's not how God made it. And there's a longing in our soul that God is going to bring to fruition when the earth is, is full of the knowledge of the Lord as much as the waters cover the sea. No more destruction. Nothing out of its place. Look again in verse 9. These will not be found there, but here's what will be found there. The redeemed will walk there and the ransomed of the Lord will return. That word redeemed referring to that thing or in, in this instance that person, even all to creation, that thing that has been bought with a price and it has been set free from bondage to sin. The ransomed of the Lord will return there. The, the ransomed is the state of a person who has been set free from that bondage to sin and their ownership has been changed. No longer a slave and a captive to Babylon. No longer a slave and a captive to the Babylon of my sin. But redeemed. Bought back with the precious blood of Christ. Set free and the ownership of my life now transferred to the sovereign Lord of the universe. These two words, redeemed and ransomed, they're offering for us, church, a clear and beautiful picture of salvation. Of the good news of a great joy. That those in bondage are set free. And those, as Jesus would say in the Gospel, with Satan as their father. Now come into the home, if you will, of a sovereign, glorious, holy God. Turn over just a couple of pages to Isaiah 43. Just a couple of verses here. Isaiah 43. See, see the promise of the Gospel, church. 
see the hope and the joy of our salvation. Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for because I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I've given Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba in your place. Beloved, God is taking all of our broken world, all of this broken creation, and He is moving it toward a final and glorious redemption. Again, as the people of God in Isaiah's day are hearing this, that will come to its immediate fulfillment when they return from Babylonian captivity, however, perfectly and finally fulfilled when all of God's ransomed and redeemed return to the new Zion, the new Jerusalem, in the midst of God's new creation. Turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. See here the glorious promise to you, church. The glorious joy that awaits you, O ransomed and redeemed. Revelation 21, verse 10. He carried me away in the Spirit into a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Look down to verse 22, church. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it as its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God is going to make it all new. And there is joy. And then lastly, Third aspect of Zion's joy is this. That Zion's joy, it's not fleeting. It's not temporary. Saints, rest in this, please. It's an everlasting joy. It won't extinguish. It won't run out. It won't change depending on your circumstances. Look at the end of verse 10. They will come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing gone, having fled away by the light of God's glory. Here in verse 10, joy is referenced three times. Joyful shouting. Everlasting joy. Gladness and joy. What is joy? What is joy? It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not happiness because that, that's based on your circumstances. 
joy is the fruit of God's Spirit within a person that causes that person to be glad in God no matter the circumstance. Let trials come. Let sorrow come. Let bad news come. Let devastation come. The Christian has by merits of God's Spirit within them, the Christian has everlasting joy. Joy is the ability. It's the Holy Spirit ability to say this, no matter my circumstance, I will hold on to a trust and a contentment and a gladness in God. That's joy. It doesn't ebb. It doesn't flow. It doesn't come and go. It is dependent upon nothing. It's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on your feelings. It's not dependent on the circumstances in which you find yourself. It is a gladness in God that transcends your circumstances. It is the contentment of hearts. It is the thankfulness of hearts. Notice what he says here in verse 10 about this. The the ransomed and the redeemed, they come with joyful shouting to Zion. God has been with them every step of the way on this highway of holiness. God has seen them safely home. All creation is made new. They didn't get destroyed along the way. God, who started the work, finishes the work, and we go home with joyful shouting. With praise upon our lips that is being compelled outward by our joyful hearts. Contented hearts. Hearts that are glad in God. And in that place, there will be praise. Every moment will be a moment for praise and joyful shouting. He says that there will be everlasting joy Upon their heads. Everlasting. That means exactly what you think it means. No end. It lasts forever. Can you imagine? I mean, we might can string together two or three good days in a row here. And that's usually about as far as it goes before something happens. Before we are not happy before a circumstance occurs that dictates our feeling and emotion. But just try to imagine with me, saints, for a moment, everlasting joy. It it, it will be as real and present and glorious on day 11 billion. I just made that number up. As it was on day one in glory. Everlasting joy. It is the crown upon the believer's head. It is the crown that we wear for all eternity. 
they will find in verse 10, they will find it. They will be overtaken. Is what that word find really means. They will be overtaken by gladness and joy. And watch this at the end of verse 10. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Just, just rest in it, saints. You hear it? You feel that? That longing that you find even in the text of Scripture being fulfilled in you. No more sorrow. In the new creation, in this new Jerusalem, there's no reason for sorrow. No cause for it. No more death. No more bad news. No more tragedies. In the new creation, there will be no reason to sigh to groan, no more weariness, no more weakness, no more pain, no more heaviness. And saints, these are true because Zion's joy is an everlasting joy that drives out all sorrow and sighing. Isaiah 25 and verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. Isaiah 30 verse 19. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When He hears it, He will answer you. Turn to Isaiah 65. You have to see this one. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. Soak it up, saints. Let it invade and overrun your Christmas. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought a curse. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. 
They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Don't you long for it, church? Don't you long for it? Beloved, the Lord will bring this day of everlasting joy. How do we know? How do we know? Because on this day, there is good news of a great joy. It's for all the peoples of the world that a Savior has been born for you who is Christ the Lord. You don't get this joy apart from Christ. You don't get this joy because you earn it. Are you here today without Christ? Stop your foolish wondering and come to Christ. He loves you. He will cleanse you. He will place you on the highway to holiness. Church, just a little while longer. Just a little while longer, precious saint. Stay in it. Stay on the road. Just a little while longer. And sorrow and sighing. It'll flee away. Let's pray together. God, take the weary hearts of your traveling saints, of these precious pilgrims, and God, encourage them with the realities of Zion's joy. God, remind the church this morning, your people. that this joy is an everlasting joy. So God, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the one in sorrow and whose days are filled with sighing. God, take the truth of the Gospel. Awaken dead hearts. Show the necessity of Christ. He's not just part of a nice Christmas story. He is salvation. God, give them desires, longings for Jesus so that they might call out in faith, turning from their sin and taking hold of Christ as He has taken hold of them. God, thank You for Your precious prophecies. Thank You, God, that they're true. Thank You, God, 
that one day our eyes will open in glory. We will know everlasting joy. Because some 2,000 years ago, on a glorious night, you sent your Son. Lord God, we love you and we thank you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Church family.